there are modern scholars who believe that some of these quotations should be in quotation marks as if you could tell when Shlomo Elf was actually questioning the value. Is this true? This is what we've heard. or This is what we've believed for such a long time. But is this true? In the Whitman-esque, we can hold multitudes and those multitudes can be inconsistent. In fact, they are inconsistent. We hold lots of inconsistent truths. And if we didn't, It'd be hard to stay married. It'd be hard to raise a family. It'd be hard to work in the world. Those inconsistencies are are actually part of the fabric of human life. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Megillat Kohelet is one of the most difficult books in Tanakh. It jumps back and forth between conflicting assumptions, it lacks any obvious narrative or thematic structure, and its statements sometimes seem at odds with what most people would consider standard rabbinic theology. People didn't discover these problems today, of course. The Mishnah and Masachi Edaim discusses whether Kohelet is even part of the Bible or not. Moreover, in Masechet Shabbat, Daflamud Amud Bet, page 30b, Rav Yehuda, the son of Rav Shmuel Bar Shilat, says in the name of Rav that the sages wanted to hide Kohelet because of its contradictions. They decided against it because its beginning and end are words of Torah. And as Rashi explains, that means that surely there must be other words of Torah in the middle. Still, the fact that they even considered this tells us that Kohelet was as mysterious to them as it is to us. Of course, we read Kohelet on the Shabbat Cholomoid of Sukkot, or in a year like this, where there is no Shabbat of Cholamoid on the first day of Sukkot in Israel, or Shemini Atzeret outside of Israel. But going through all 12 chapters quickly in Shul is not the best way to internalize the many messages of this fascinating book. For that reason, I was extremely gratified to welcome Dr. Erica Brown back to the podcast. Erica is the author of the wonderful new book, Kohelet and the Search for Meaning, and she and I discussed some of the many questions that are raised by Kohelet. I have to say that this was one of the most stimulating conversations I've ever had about Tanakh, and it really opened my eyes and helped explain some of the many conundrums implicit in Kohelet. It's a conversation that invokes Shlomo HaMelech, The Birds, C.S. Lewis, William Blake, George Carlin, and others, and I really think that it will give you a new appreciation for the importance and greatness of Kohelet, just as it did for me. We'll get to that conversation in a moment. First, subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Audible, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And remember to rate and review. Nowadays, there is no better way to promote your company, your organization, your brand, or yourself than to have a podcast, as long as that podcast sounds great and is expertly produced. That's exactly what we do at JCH Podcasts. So go to jchpodcast.com or write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. You will be thrilled with the results. I also invite you to subscribe for free to my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. I've been enjoying writing these articles, and I hope you enjoy reading them. Last week, I wrote an article entitled The Smokescreen about how an organization called the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World, which publicly calls for an end to smoking, is actually funded entirely by the world's biggest cigarette manufacturer for less than noble motives. Check it out as well as the other articles that are there and subscribe today. Dr. Erica Brown is the Vice Provost for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University and is the founding director of its Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership. She previously served as the director of the Mayberg Center for Jewish Education and Leadership at the George Washington University and as a scholar-in-residence for the Combined Jewish Philanthropies of Boston and the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. Erica was a Jerusalem Fellow, an Avichai Fellow, the recipient of the 2009 Covenant Award, and is a faculty member of the Wexner Foundation. She has written or co-authored 15 books on the Hebrew Bible, spirituality, and leadership, and has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Tablet, First Things, and the Jewish Review of Books, wrote a monthly column for the New York Jewish Week, and is a consulting editor for the journal Tradition. Her latest book is Kohelet and the Search for Meaning. She currently serves as a community scholar for Congregation Eitz Chaim in Livingston, New Jersey. Erica has interviewed Isaac Herzog, the President of Israel, Madeleine Albright, David Brooks, Jeffrey Goldberg, Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, David Gregory, Dennis Ross, David Makovsky, Sarah Hurwitz, Ruth Messinger, and Dara Horn, among others. She tweeted on one page of Talmud Study a Day at Dr. Erica Brown. 
She is the proud mother of four children, four in-law children, and five beautiful grandchildren. Dr. Erica Brown, thank you very much for joining me once again on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Scott, it's great to be back. And uh, any conversation with you is going to be a good conversation. So thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Our last conversation was so well-received. People, I was just telling you, my wife in particular and so many other people have said that you were just such a wonderful guest. So it's a real joy for me to have you back on again and to talk about the wonderful new book that you authored entitled Ecclesiastes, i.e. Kohelet, and The Search for Meaning. Let's start at the beginning. Why did you write this book and what were you trying to accomplish by writing this book? This is going to be a surprise answer. I've always loved Kohelet. It's been uh, it's been one of the books that I've most drawn to in um, in Tanakh, and and probably I know we're not supposed to pick favorites, um, but I think that there's something about this book that really speaks very profoundly to me. And and as I've aged, I've aged into the book. Um, but actually, I was working on another book during COVID, and I was getting frustrated. I had a I had the book pretty much done, but it wasn't going in the direction I wanted. And I loved writing for the Tanakh series that Magid produced. So I called uh, my friend Ronnie Ziegler, Ruben Ziegler, who is the editor-in-chief there. And I said to him, are there any books left in the series? And he said, Kohelet and Mishle. He said, Ecclesiastes and, and Proverbs. And I said, well, I know I've done two. Could I do three? Is that like greedy? And I said, because I'd love to write on Kohelet. And he said, done. And I had the contract the next day. And um, and it was a very joyful, you know, when, when a book that you love becomes a, a part of the creative world that you think about, that's, that's really a great shidduch. It's a great match. That's fantastic. Someone saw me in Shul on Shabbos carrying the book, and he asked me how it is. I said, I just started it, but any book that quotes George Carlin in its second footnote has to be worth reading. <laughs> so that's certainly a good start to it. I want to ask you about that very fact. You have written other books, both for Magid and elsewhere. Was it a different kind of experience writing about Kohelet? How was it different? And that really opens up what you mentioned before. Why have you related to Kohelet so much? Yeah. Um, so structurally, it's very similar because the Tanakh series uh, has a certain style. Um, I did three essays, as I do on every chapter. So there's 12 chapters, you know, an introduction, a preface, introduction, a blog that adds. Um, so it, it was a long book because it's got a long exegetical history. So that, that wasn't different about it. I think what was different about it was, number one, writing it during COVID. And the themes in the book were things that we were reading about in the news. You know, Amelut, the idea of working and toiling and labor and futile labor sort of seemed so relevant to all the articles I was reading in the Times and the Wall Street Journal and in magazines, Harvard Business Review, about, uh, you know, quiet quitting and uh, and the great resignation and people asking themselves, what, why am I working so hard? Why do I need to be in an office? How do I balance my work and home life? So there was a series of questions about the purpose of work that I thought were really important. Of course, there's the intimations of our mortality which come up continuously in the book, and thinking about uh, disease and the and the cost, the global cost that this was having in human life, made me think a lot about uh, Kohelet. I spent a lot of time reading, and I'll talk to you about that in a second. Reading and buying books during so much so in 2020 that I actually went on a book fest in 2021, uh, and it said, "I'm not going to buy another book. I'm just going to read what I have and borrow." But that was fun, but the idea of knowledge and whether knowledge is something we all seek to achieve or whether knowledge, as in appears in verse 1, chapter 18, is itself a form of despondency and despair, right? And, and what does that mean to find wisdom somehow burdensome? So there, were, there were a lot of those themes that kept coming up in the time period in which it, in which it came up. But I say apart from that, I've always been drawn to existential philosophy. There are a lot of contemporary scholars who like to put Camus and uh, Kohelet together, um, which I guess you get the K sound and that, that comes together nicely. Tolstoy and Confessions. There are a lot of meaning seekers um, and meaning seekers who either stubbornly, I, I, I don't think Camus and Kohelet are, I could see where they would be grouped together, but I think they are very inherently different in terms of the outcomes that they they draw and in terms of the purpose that they see, and also the role of joy. I think transient joy 
which I'm happy to talk about, that, that appears in seven times, seven times in these clusters of, uh, you know, eat, eat, drink, and be merry. This too was a gift from God. And that also came up for me during COVID because I think we realized that we need to take pleasure in small things because a lot of those big momentous things we weren't allowed to celebrate. Okay, there's a lot there, and I want to get into a number of the issues yeah, that you there raised. Yeah, a lot there. Before we get into some of those issues, I want to first talk about the controversy surrounding the authorship of Kohelet, because the Megillah itself implies pretty strongly that it was written by Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. It says that I was a king in Jerusalem. It says that he was the son of David. It says he was a king over Israel. That narrows it down to basically Solomon and his son Rehavam, and Rehavam was only a king over all of Israel for a very short time. So based on the words of Megillah Kohelet itself, it certainly sounds like it's Shlomo. On the other hand, as you point out in the book, the vast majority of academic scholars say that's not true for various reasons. I'm not so interested right now in whether the traditional viewpoint or the academic viewpoint is correct. I'm more concerned about whether it matters. I'd like to hear your take on does it matter who the author of Kohelet is? If it was not Shlomo, does that undermine anything about the holiness or importance of the book? Right. I think that's a great question. It's really not limited uh, to Kohelet, but about all Bible scholarship. Um, I remember I was teaching a 20-part class in uh, Bible in a non-Orthodox setting. And uh, according to the, those who set the curriculum, they wanted to deal with authorship as sort of question number two. And I said... I'm not sure authorship right now is the key issue. I think getting familiarity with a text and developing a love for a text is important when you're beginning a textual journey. And authorship, of course, is important, but but it's it's important to a very limited segment of the population. Most people, they don't care who published a book. They care what the contents of the book are. And I'm not trying to trivialize issues of authorship. Certainly when it comes to divine revelation, it ha- that has huge repercussions. But in terms of this book, it's clearly written by someone who is a courtier on some level, either the highest level as king or, or not. This is someone who is concerned about governance. So we could have a whole conversation. I do have a whole chapter on on kingship and the, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Carlin, George Carlin. There's also the Mel Brooks, you know, it's good to be the king. And, and I think here, there's it's good to be the king. It's also bad to be the king. And and you have a lot of verses that deal with issues of authority and governance. So I'm not sure that it matters. I think part of what gives it the, um, the traditional heft is to say in the famous Midrash that Shlomo wrote Shir Shirim when he was, he wrote Song of Songs when he's full of ardor and passion of youth. He wrote um, Mishlei when he was older, midlife whatever midlife was then, uh, midlife to sort of postulate rules to live by. And then by the time we get to Kohelet, we have him, if he was the same author, indeed was the same author, we have him undermining some of that wisdom, questioning some of the received wisdom, uh, which I think actually is a wonderful project. Uh, when you say, gee, I've lived a lifetime with these cliches. Are they true? <laughs> right? Have they, have they worked? Um, might I interrogate some of the received wisdom that I've gotten? You know, when someone says, oh, there's, you know, that didn't work out. Well, there's a lot of other fish in the sea. Is that the best response you've got to, to heartbreak or to losing a job? I think we appreciate as we get older, the vulnerability of all human life. There's not a family that's not touched by tragedy of some sort or another. And so there's something about that fragility, that interrogation of received wisdom that I think is really, really important. Um, There are modern scholars who believe that some of these quotations should be in quotation marks, as if you could tell which Lowell was actually questioning the value. Is this true? This is what we've heard. This is what we've believed for such a long time. But is this true? In the Whitman-esque, we can hold multitudes. And those multitudes can be inconsistent. In fact, they are inconsistent. We hold lots of inconsistent truths. And if we didn't, it'd be hard to stay married. It'd be hard to raise a family. It'd be hard to work in the world. Those inconsistencies are, are actually part of the fabric of human life. 
Okay, so now let's speak about one of those cliches, not one of the ones that are mentioned in Kohelet, but one that I've heard many times. I'm going to assume that you disagree with this cliche, but I'm going to present it as I've often heard it. You wrote a book entitled Ecclesiastes and the Search for Meaning. I think a lot of people would say, what do you mean? It's actually Ecclesiastes and the realization that there is no meaning. And that's really the theme of Kohelet, that Havel Havelim, it's all worthless. And we'll get to that particular pasuk soon. So in what way is that characterization fair or unfair? Well, you called it. I will disagree with you, and I'm disagreeing with you. Um, um, and 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 part of that has to do with the fact that Kohelet himself identifies meaning. Um, he does identify meaning in eating and drinking, uh, in in comradeship, with in companionship, um, and and one's wife. Uh, again, it's uh, it's written by male, so uh, and one's wife is part of that celebration. And of course, the end of Kohelet. Ending with the soft of our Nishma, and it was at the end of the day, I've looked at all these different issues, and I've come to the conclusion that belief in God and the observance of ritual, the observance of mitzvot, the observance of of of, uh, of a structure that gives meaning, is is the way in which meaning occurs. Um, so, a few things. Number one, I actually call it Kohelet, um, but the watermark looks stronger on Ecclesiastes on the cover. Um, Kohelet and the Search for Meaning. And actually, if I were to add to the title, because we try to keep our titles short, it would really be whether there's enduring meaning or because there's nothing that stays really static in human life, is there an, is there an enduring meaning versus a temporal meaning? And that's why I think um, his observations about simcha, about happiness, are so, so rich and important. Because sometimes you'll see stylistically, Goelet will be talking about why there is justice in the world. And then he concludes that with, well, we should eat. We should eat and drink. And you're going, I don't really understand that juxtaposition. That doesn't seem wise. I think actually saying something very profound. We can be bogged down by the tragedies in the world and the injustices in the world and still take pleasure in human in being alive and and the activities of being human i call this a theology of distraction it's you're you're distracting yourself intentionally because you cannot solve some of the big issues um i i mean i think this is true of friendship we're not going to solve all of life's meaning but friendship is a way in which we hold on to people so that we tova shnayim and echad but two are better than one um, because we can distract ourselves together and we can take pleasure in each other and in the material world, for example, or pleasure in prayer or pleasure in the observance of commandments um, and still not solve the problem of justice. Because this is not, this has been falsely attributed to Camus with the statement, should I have, should I have a cu- cup of coffee or should I kill myself, right? Um, and you read that as an existentialist, you're thinking, well, is suicide an answer to the fact that I can't find meaning? Um, or is a cup of coffee the answer? And you said that's so absurd. And yet there's something validating about the absurdity of it. I can still enjoy something. I can enjoy my breakfast, even if the morning news is tragic. You might say that's not fair. You should be absorbed totally in the tragedy. But we're also material beings. And we're also beings who can say parenting is very difficult, it's very physical, but I can love my children. And and that gives me this intensity of meaning, even if in the everyday care for them, I might not always see that pleasure. Wow, that is so fascinating, a theology of distraction. I'll have to really ruminate on that for a little bit because there's so much to think about that particular point. Yeah, can I get? Can I say one other thing? So yeah. people are familiar with um, the work of um, John Gottman, who's done, who, who does a lot of research in relationships and, and marriage in particular, and uh, is written many, many books on it. Has a very active uh, website. He talks about when you're in the, when you're in the midst of an argument, um, marital strife, but this is true for all relationships. Sometimes it it's helpful to pause and do something that you love together, and then go back to the same question. Now you're saying, "What do you mean? We'll just argue all night." you know, why should we go bowling? Um, but I could say, I, I actually need to remind myself of what is good in a relationship, of what works, of what of what brings pleasure and delight and a good laugh. And, and then I can go back 
And when I go back, I'm I'm actually I'm maybe asking the same questions: how we can live together more peaceably, you know, how we can overcome this this crack or this obstacle. But I'm doing so from a position of more love, um, and that's what the pause, that's what the distraction is. That's why I believe that the theology of distraction is a very spiritual concept, but one that's very underdeveloped. You know, you're saying something right now, which is forcing me to rethink one of my core ideas in pop culture. I'll tell you a strange short story that I once heard that Joan Gans Cooney, who was the founder of the Children's Television Workshop, now Sesame Workshop, people who made Sesame Street, they have international productions. They have in Israel, or they've had in Israel, they have in some Arab countries. And she once said something which really bothered me. And you're forcing me to rethink that. She said that she imagined Israelis and Palestinians or Israelis and Arabs sitting across from each other at the negotiating table, not being able to get anywhere. And then somebody mentions an Ernie and Bert sketch. And somehow they all laugh. And then they can continue from that point on. And maybe they'll be able to bridge the gaps. I was actually offended by that because it implies that the only reason that we don't get along is because some personality disorder or something. And I saw this as some sort of assumption that if we could only just get along, it's just a personality conflict, as opposed to recognizing that, no, there are some serious major issues over here that really do matter. It's not just people not getting along. There are important differences here, and it's not easy to bridge that gap. It's not just a matter of liking each other. But what you're saying is that maybe, maybe I dismissed it too quickly. Maybe distraction, maybe finding a commonality in a different area altogether is not as negative as I portrayed it because I always thought that was terrible, but maybe there's something to it. Right. So what's interesting in that example um, is the commonality of something that's relatively trivial. And I actually think, you know, when you're reading Kohelet, if you're reading it as a continuous text, now of course we read it in, in shul, we read it in synagogue on um, code, um on the Shabbat of Cholamoid, uh, it's very problematic because you're reading it at lightning speed generally. It's hard to get through 12 chapters with everything else that you need to do liturgically for the day. And so you're racing through it. And it, But if you're racing through it and saying, how do I chunk this up? You know, you go, what do you mean? We're going from why, why good things happen to bad people to eating and drinking. And again, this is intentional, Scott, because it appears seven times and it punctuates the book. So these, these verses. So it's not as if he has an idea. He just keeps going back to that idea where he, he keeps saying, you know, there is trivial pleasure, what we'll call transient value, and transient value should not be minimized. I tell a little story in the introduction that I want to share because I can, I can tell that the two of us care about this particular, you know, uh, dissonance, uh, a, a cognitive dissonance between these two spheres. So uh, Freud, and, and uh, Freud really helped me on this, Freud wrote a short essay called On Transients, and he describes walking with the poet Rilke, who was young at the time, and they're taking a walk in Vienna, and it's the summer, and there's beautiful, uh, the city's flowering, and it's beautiful, and Rilke is taciturn, and Freud doesn't understand why he's so grumpy, and he sort of questions him about his sourness, and Rilke says, all this beauty, all of it's going to die, so why should I even note the beauty, sort of, Um, and, and Freud understood how off the poet was, in fact, it's strange for a poet rather than a psychoanalyst, because a poet's job in many ways is to take something that's relatively small and bring us into that moment. Even the way that a poem looks by and large, unless you're an epic poet, um, is, is, is fragmentary. Saying, it, I, Freud said the reason that, 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 that it's beautiful is because it's going to die. In other words, we attach, it amplifies the beauty of it because of the transient value of it. Now, whether or not he could fully communicate that perspective to the poet, I don't know, but he certainly communicated it to me um, and, uh, uh, and, and helped me think through what it means. And that, that gets to Hevel, which you wanted to talk about. So I'll, I'll let you ask that question. But what does Hevel really mean? Is it a statement of gloom and doom or is it about the power of the transitory moment to make a life? So we'll get to Hevel in just a moment. What you're saying now definitely reminds me of, I think it's Blake who said something like holding eternity in an hour. I think that's definitely the case here. Before we get to yeah, Hevel, or, which will be or my next question. Or someone can achieve the, you know, achieve the world in one moment. I, I, I wanted to share a question that a student asked me many, many years ago. I've never forgotten. 
she said to me, is it spiritual to raise your children? And I thought, is it spiritual? And I said, when they're sleeping. And she started to laugh. And I said, well, no, no, I, I mean that quite seriously. You know, when your children, when your young children are active and making messes and saying no, and you're negotiating with them about everything from what cookie they can or can't have to whether or not they got a fair share of the pie, you don't think about how spiritual this is, or I'll just say, I didn't think about it. I'm sure there are people uh, much far greater than me who think about these things every moment. But when my children were sleeping and I went to tuck them in, the godliness of kissing a child on the neck, right? When the child is asleep and the feeling of parenting is the singularly most important way that I can connect to God. I learn, I, you know, I daven, I, 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 I study, I pray, but, but there's something about that powerful moment of the fact that God creates life and we created life and that God looks at a world and says, Kitov, it's good. And that we can look at the world and says, Kitov, I don't need to have that every moment, but if I don't have any of those moments, it's problematic. And if you can have it at the end of a day, and so it doesn't mean that all of the difficulties and the challenges of parenting disappear. But it sort of puts everything in perspective. That that one minute can color the other, you know, the other hours of the day. It's a beautiful idea. Thank you for sharing that. Again, we're going to get to Hevel next, but before we get there, only because we're talking a bit about theodicy, the question about divine justice. So, does Kohelet actually have a theodicy? Does he have a way of understanding? why bad things happen to good people, along with why good things happen to good people. That's the real question. It's the inconsistency of everything. Or like at the end of the book, he seems to say, listen to God, and that's what it's all about. But earlier in Kohelet, he goes in a very different direction and says, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't make any sense. And as you said, just eat and drink. So is there a theodicy in Kohelet or not? Okay, so I, I don't see him saying it doesn't matter. So I wanted to square. I see him saying I, I'm, he's an observer. And we're going to talk about Eov in a second, Job. Kohelet is an observer of life, and is and he only puts down the observations that are most troubling to him, or that are most beneficial to him. And I say that because one of the struggles as a writer on Kohelet is that you don't want to be repetitive, but he's repetitive, right? He is keeps going back to certain things as if he's as if to say, you know, you asked about why bad things happen to good people in some version when you were five years old. Right? Why do I get less pie? And this guy is not even a nice guy and he's getting the same or more. And you ask that question when you suffer a terrible tragedy as an adolescent. And you ask it differently when you're a parent yourself. And you ask it differently when you're older and you lose a spouse and you lose friends. Um, so I think that there, that Kohelet is sort of saying to you without saying explicitly the things that you struggle with, the nature of work, the nature of love, the nature of distraction, the nature of of uh, of money, all these things you're going to keep asking these questions about. And they'll get nuanced and they'll, and they'll become a little bit different across the lifespan. Don't stop asking them. But in terms specifically about the question of injustice, Eov asks not as a philosopher. Eov asks his question as a sufferer. And that is, is the a, opposite of an observer. His yeah, friends right, exactly, are observers. Exactly. So if you like, Eov is having the conversation and Kohelet is having the meta conversation because he's not asking as someone who experiences it. Uh, I learned a very, very important thing. I did a master's degree in religious education at the Institute of uh, London, uh, which is the Institute of Education as part of the University of London. And I read an article which shifted everything, I think, about, uh, about this question. The article suggested that when people ask you a religious question, your initial response as an educator has to be, is this happening to you? Because sometimes someone is asking you a philosophical question. What they really mean is I'm asking you a psychological and personal question. And if you answer as a philosopher, you will totally miss why they asked you that question. So I had an experience when I was uh, 19 I worked on CounterPoint, which was a wonderful program that Yeshiva University ran in um, in Australia. Um, it took 31 hours to get there, and we ran in a number of camps for students. And a few days after we left one of our camps, Scott, uh, we heard the terrible news that two of the children we worked with uh, were, were hit by a car and died. 
we were so far away. Um, we were in, s- in such a different time zone. And we were bereft and they were bereft. And one of them wrote me a letter. And I subsequently ended up using excerpts from this letter to write an article about it in the Yeshiva University, uh, one of our papers on Jewish thought. She was struggling. She said, how could God do this to us? How could God do this to me? Now, I was a philosophy major, Scott, but also an idiot. And as an idiot philosophy student, I photocopied all these articles by philosophers on justice in the world. And it probably cost me $25 to mail. I don't remember at the time, but it was a long time ago. And I sent them off and I never heard from her again, but said that justly, because I was trying, what she was saying to me is, I am hurting. My life is ruined. I don't know how to get up in the morning. And what I was answering was the philosophical question that she masked it in. So as a human being, as an educator, I failed in that moment. And I think a lot of people sort of move into, let me answer, you know, sometimes we have hero of organizations, they're going to solve all the problems. What, and and, and uh, if you join, we're going to figure out why God does things in the world. And my response is, don't be sold on that idea. Open up the book of Kohelet and understand that this is a question you will ask yourself for the entirety of your life. And it's okay to have unanswered questions as long as you have people you love who you're asking them with, right? Your friends, your, your, your family, as long as the question somehow propels you to seek justice yourself in the world and do something that improves the world, that's what you've got. That's the control that you've got your, is, your, is your reaction. Okay. That's a very good answer to my question, so I appreciate that, even though it's painful to listen to what you said. I want to go into Hevel now because perhaps the most famous, I'm sure actually the most famous verse in Kohelet has to be chapter one, verse two, Havel Havelim, vanity of vanities, Seth the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, according to the King James Bible translation. Now, the reason I'm quoting him is because I want to know if that's a good translation of the word Hevel, because you have a chapter where you talk about how we are supposed to translate that word vanity, Hevel. Yeah. And I think I think actually so much turns on that word. I mean, in addition to the fact that it appears uh, dozens, literally dozens of times in the book. So, you know, if you we call it a late word, a word that the Bible uses to reinforce the central message, it certainly would be Hevel. You could rename the book Hevel and people would feel that you'd done a good job with your title because it is as it says. We received this translation, the King James translation, is was done in 1611, if I'm not mistaken. So we've had hundreds of years of what I believe is a mistranslation, because certainly we think of vanity. Uh, you know, you're so vain. Uh, to, to quote the song, we think of vanity as the opposite of humility. So it it's it's hard, even though it has other meanings. That translation is not is not helpful for us. And so I, I have a chapter on it, and I look at all different kinds of translations of it. Um, Hevel, Hevel's first appearance is in Genesis 4, in Sefer Breshit Dalid, and it, it appears in the name of Hevel, Hevel and Cain, Cain and Abel. Abel means something in English, which is the exact opposite, if you will, of what it means in Hebrew. Hevel as something which dissipates and is transitory. Hevel Enenu, like he just disappears from the text. Um, he, he's murdered. And we don't even have a speaking role for him, right? It's only Cain who is speaking and coming up against him in the field. Cain speaks to Abel. Abel doesn't respond. So Hevel is always transitory. And therefore, I, I prefer the translation of vapor or breath, uh, which Robert Alter likes to use, um, a breath. And when I learned about that translation, the whole book looked different. Everything is breath. So you can say, something is a vapor, you breathe, and then your breath disappears. You can't even see it unless it's a winter's day and you're and you're breathing in the cold outside. You can't see your breath. And it's the most temporal thing, right? But it also is an involuntary way in which you know that you're alive, right? When we say, call on the Shema to Hallelujah, right? The idea, ah, the deep breath, and for those that are listening, I would even recommend take that diaphragmatic breath with me and see where it takes you in terms of the relaxation of the body 
and the sense of harmony with the world. So can we can we do that once or twice, Scott? You're with me. Yeah, we're gonna of course, please. In. Okay, we're gonna breathe in. I- I'm doing it with four. you. Okay. We're gonna breathe in for four and hold it for four and then release it in four. All right. Now let's do that twice. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Ready? Breathe in for four. Three, four. Hold it for four. And exhale for four. Okay. So let's try that again. I won't count this time. I'll just count to myself. Breathe in for four. Hold. Release. What happened for you physiologically? That. It calms me down. That's the question about that. I don't know what you're referring to, but that's, I feel my, my heart rate slows down. I am definitely more relaxed. Right. So you also, I was watching your shoulders drop, right? My shoulders drop, okay. right? You drop and the breath goes deep into a diaphragmatic place as opposed to shallow breathing. Of course, meditation is based on the breath, right? It's, on, uh, it's consciousness of the breath. So if you say to yourself, is Shlomo Amelech, is the author of Kohelet, suggesting that all is really breath. The involuntary mechanism by which we continue to live only we have the power to deepen that, to slow it down, to sort of ease into a life which will be filled with hardship and challenge and amilut and hard labor. But the breath allows us to stop and reflect on it more. Not dissimilar, but physiologically dissimilar to the way a blessing might operate and saying, oh, let me see and pause on that lightning and make a blessing. Let me bless on this orange, right? So that I can actually be fully in, you know, in a position of mindful eating. So all of that, everything is, is, is a vapor. And that, what that also means, which is described, I think, in greater length in the third chapter, uh, which is the time poem, the famous time poem that the birds uh, re- recorded, many, many famous music uh, groups have, have sung it since. But the idea that everything has a season and you cycle into something. So when you cycle into something bad, or I'll, I'll say it in reverse, when you cycle into something good, right? Eight la ho, there's a time to love. Amazing. You will cycle into something bad. Eight with snow, there's a time to hate. We're no, none of us want to go there, but sometimes we're there. But we're also going to go from the time to hate to back to the time of love. In other words, that cycle of breath returns to us, right? The cycle of human experience returns to us Kohelet is just sort of putting you in the mindset of Hevel, right? The breath that keeps returning, the cycle of existence, and then the pause to experience something of transitory pleasure, the pause to experience something of transitory grief, but know that you will laugh again. Um, it, you know, I think C.S. Lewis uh, arguably wrote the best book ever on grief, um, a grief observed uh, on the death of his, his uh, a wife of only a few years. And one of the things that he does, which I find enormously comforting, but I was a little also offended by, to use your language from before, when his wife dies, he says, I'm only going to write about her in as many notebooks as I have in my house. I'm going to take all the paper that I have, and then it's going to be done. It's not that his grief was done. It's that there was, you know, there's no limit to grief. It's limitless. And when he starts talking about grief, you know, the realization of other people are laughing. How could anyone laugh? My wife has died. How can I shave? He says, like, how can I shave again? Because I can't experience anything of beauty again because this loss is so great. But as we know from psychological research, most people recover from grief and go back to the, to the status quo of their happiness. And what a relief that is even though at the time they can't imagine ever cycling it. And in fact, if I, if I were to cycle out of it, I would be betraying my beloved if I ever laughed again. But you will laugh again. And you may not feel that right now. So I think Kohelet um, is a wonderful uh, book published by, um, by Oxford on time in Kohelet, right? Because the breath is a, a unit of time. And the whole season is also a unit of time. The whole book is about the experience of time. Wow. 
Okay, so if we look at Havel Havelim as almost anticipating the time poem in Parag Gimel, as well as many other aspects of the book, and you also already mentioned the bird song. So let's go to the bird song, the famous song written by Pete Seeger, Turn, Turn, Turn. By the way, just to show you that I did my research, it turns out that that reached number one on the Billboard chart on December 4th, 1965, which was the day after Rubber Soul was released by the Beatles. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The only reason I'm mentioning that is that I rarely have an opportunity to talk about rock and roll from the 60s on this podcast. So once that door is open, I'm going to go for it. Speaking of transitory pleasures. Anyway, regarding Kohelet, in terms of that poem, the 14 pairs, A Time to Love and A Time to Hate, one of the reasons that I find it a little bit difficult, and you talk about this in your book as well, maybe there's no answer, but maybe you can help enlighten me on this one. It doesn't seem to make sense structurally. What I mean by that is sometimes the positive, what I would call the positive, the time to love is first and time to hate comes second. In other situations, the negative comes first and the positive comes second. You've already answered what the purpose of this poem was, the cyclical nature of life. And I had wondered myself, what really is he saying? These are sort of obvious. You've, you've addressed that already. But why is the structure of this poem so strange? I, at least it's strange to me. Yeah, um... I wouldn't say it's strange to me. I actually think that as a writer, Kohelet, maybe consciously or unconsciously, employed shock value throughout the book. There's a lot of disjointedness that makes you stop and read it more carefully. And I say that because one of the things that I do, in addition to comparing Kohelet and Eo, Job, is also comparing it to Mishle, the book of Proverbs, which it's most often compared to. It's like, here's a book of Proverbs and here's a book of Proverbs. So if I can only buy one, which one should I read? If you look at the development, and I think this is what Chazal were very sensitive to in thinking about Kohelet as representing a certain age that is post-Mishle, post-Proverbs. Proverbs, in the book of Proverbs, you almost can predict every chapter what's going to appear, right? Uh, and the wisdom of it, wisdom's always good, uh, ignorance is always bad. Justice is always good. Injustice is always bad. Being in control of one's yetzer, of one's inclination, putting oneself with the right people in the right places is always good. Um, danger lurks every time you put yourself around certain people, right? These are tropes that appear. Um, many of them are very, very beautifully, beautifully contained. But I would say there's a predictability of the wisdom. I think what Kohela does, again, in that interrogation of received wisdom is he keeps sort of mining the surprise or writing in a way which jogs the minds, right? So if we were to say, oh, there's a time to do this and there's not a time to do that, there's a time to do this and there's a time to do that. But then when he switches in order, he's actually sort of, there's a shock value about it and say, don't be lulled into sort of the bathwater of how this works because it could be that that negative experience outweighs the positive experience, right? So you might say, you know, love I take for granted. When I feel hate, hate, as David Hume called, is a vehement emotion, right? I, I love that e expression, the vehement emotion. When you're experiencing ve vehement emotions, we tend to think this moment of anger and frustration is the truest moment I have ever experienced. But we decontextualize it. And I think in this season of, of change, of repentance, it's worth thinking about, have I limited all of my experiences with a particular person or even with God or with myself to the most negative experience I've ever had? All right. um, Hannah Arendt talks about this, and I find this very provocative. She talks about when you when you don't grant repentance, you don't, I mean, you don't grant forgiveness, you lock someone as if in a spell, you lock them into a moment of time. And so if I, uh, God forbid, I should get an argument with you, Scott, but let's say we we did get an argument about something and you were very, very angry at me. And uh, uh, what's today? Today is September 11th, of course. Um, and uh, September 11th, we might lock ourselves into this argument and say our relationship has not progressed. Even though there were all kinds of other very positive things, we decontextualized it. And we didn't put it within the range of emotions that one could and should experience and say, yeah, we had a rough time then. But now we're in a different place. So I think one of the things that Koela does is he actually calls attention in that quote unquote disorder to the strength of a vehement emotion and asks us, 
to recontextualize it within the range and nuance of an emotional life. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, thank you. Okay, I'm no longer confused. I appreciate your saying that. But that also leads me to another question. you could be confused because that would be, you know, that's the state of... uh, (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm not confused about the meaning behind the structure, but I'll ask you about the macro structure of the book as long as we're talking about narrative structure because one of the points that you make, and which is clear, is that unlike the book of Eov, for example, and many, or not most, books of Tanakh, Kohelet does not have an obvious structure. In fact, some people say it has no structure whatsoever. And... I'll ask you that. Is there a structure to Kohelet? And what's the purpose behind this seeming lack of structure, even if there is some underlying framework, some narrative framework that puts it all together? Yeah, I, I don't think there's a narrative framework that puts this together. I, I really don't. Um, you know, I even wonder if Kohelet wrote this in chunks, the way that many people do write books, right? They, you know, they, they have a theme. Uh, so, for example, I would say that chapter two is probably the most coherent narrative structure where Kohela does this thought experiment, more than thought experiment, he's a financial experiment. And he says, you know, let me see if I can buy my way to happiness. Now, he doesn't say that he didn't experience happiness, but he says, that's all I got out of my money. In other words, it wasn't, again, in the, what Kohela is asking, is there enduring meaning? Um, and that hedonistic experiment turned out uh, poorly, but I'm sure he had a really great time doing it. Uh, so I think that's the only real narrative structure is he takes you on this journey of one of his trials. And you could look at the narrative structure as that's the most explicit articulation, but each of his chapters in some way is a, uh, is a thought experiment, right? He's, he's asking certain kinds of questions. Um, so chapter three, for example, would be about, uh, can we cycle out of grief and, and negativity to other positive experiences? And so he creates this sort of lyrical poem. Um, which you know, some people believe is one of the great poems that has ever been written, the time poem. He's taking us in a cycle of time. Um, I would say for me, chapter 12 was, was probably the most arresting chapter. And there's two parts of that. One has been called the ruined house or the ruined estate, the observation that the body weakens. And he really takes you through the metaphor of the body weakening, of the funeral cortege, you know, walking by and the sense that life is going to pass us by. And then there's a sharp break where he has, if you will, because we use the term meta conversation, he's closing the book and telling you what it is I tried to do, which is interesting. He didn't do that in the beginning. He didn't say I was trying to interrogate wisdom and uh, see these quotes as a goad, as a, as a motivator. I, and this is what I did for you. I put together a package of all the things that I've learned in this life. I have to say as someone who's worked with a lot of um, writers, on what their objectives are when they write, particularly people who are trying to write memoirs, is they'll often say, I've learned a lot in this life about my experiences, so I really want to share them. It might be a a, a project that they're just doing for themselves and their families. It might be some larger project that they want to do on a national scale. Here's what I tried to do. So Coelho is writing an epilogue to what he was trying to do. So in that sense, you know, he gives you a little bit of a forward bookends, a little bit of a forward, a little bit of an epilogue. I don't think it works systemically, no. Okay. Let's talk about that epilogue just for a moment when he says in the second to last, or at least part of the epilogue, in the second to last pasuk when he says, at the end of the day, once everything has been heard, I apologize for my imperfect translation, yeah. fear God and keep his misvot because that is the point of all humanity. Again, I'm just translating it off the top of my head. I'm sure there's a more exact translation we could have. At the same time, in the seventh parak, he says, do not be so righteous. Don't be so righteous. So I want to know if in the last pasuk, he is taking that back and saying, well, I was wrong. Actually, now looking at everything, you should be tzadikarbe. You should be exceedingly righteous. That's the whole point of being alive. Or can they coexist in some way? So I think righteousness and, ex- and, and righteous indignation are two different things. I think righteousness and righteous extremism are two different things, which I think it probably is more accurate to what uh, Coelho may have meant in chapter seven. Um, maybe it's don't be self-righteous, right? Al-Tzadik okay. Karbeh, right? You know, don't be um, self-righteous in a way that alienates other people because you've set yourself up as a, you know, as a role model, as the sort of the, you know, the guide to the perfect world. Um, no one's no one's found that. And, uh, and, and please don't advertise that you found it because it's just going to backfire on you. Um, so I don't I don't see those as inconsistent. I mean, inconsistencies do riddle Kohelet. Uh, Michael B. Fox wrote a whole book about the contradictions in Kohelet. As I said, I, I, I'm I'm okay with it because I think, uh, you know, if you 
read Eric Erickson's stages of adulthood, uh, of, of adult development, there is a stage where you have to learn to hold inconsistencies. How could I be this and also be that? It gives way to I am this and I am that, right? Now, I, I, I need to navigate those things because sometimes some of my behaviors may trouble other people, let's say, when I'm inconsistent. So I need to articulate that and own it, um, but I also can observe it. Again, in the in the in the stage of of observing, one of the things that's so interesting to me is that Kohelet and 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 I want to put it maybe as a question to you, Scott. You know, he he says asots farim arbe and kids, right? There's, there's no end to the to the number of books. He's almost saying, don't buy this book, right? Because <laughs> you know, what's a book going to tell you? Um, and there is there are there are explanations, which uh, David among them who says you can't put everything in a book. Right, maybe what what Shlomo Melech or the author of Kohelet was saying is, you know, no matter I'm ending this book by telling you, there might not be anything worthwhile in this book, uh, or maybe this is my book, but it's not your book. Um, and I, I I open my my own book that way. You know, if it, it, I don't know why I wrote another book because this, you know, Shlomo Melech says there's no there's no value in in, in writing books, right? Um, what's the, what's the value in this? Or you can say what he was essentially doing as he closed his ideas is he's saying, while there are a lot of books written out there, I wrote this one. And what I've observed is because you can't answer lots of questions, you need to create some kind of structure to have a meaningful life. And what I have found as a meaningful life is the fear of God and the observance of mitzvot. Um, So it's not didactic. It's very, very personal. Right, it, it gets away from Mishlei's, from the power, the didacticism of of Mishlei to say, I'm not really telling you what to do. I'm saying that I want to share with you the the things I've been thinking about over a long period of time, and I encourage you to do much the same. So, in us, if each of us took as a project this, you know, the season, what's your Kohelet, right? What's what's the you know, Kohelet doesn't identify himself as a king, which is very interesting. Is he saying, I mean, he does say I'm an email. He doesn't identify himself as uh, as Shlomo, the author Shlomo. If the author is saying, I am Kohelet, I need Kohelet, I'm a preacher. Are you a preacher? Do you have something to say? Scott, did you ever take that project down for yourself and put down things of wisdom for yourself? I have not. I mean, I record podcasts and write essays, but I wouldn't say that I gather together words of wisdom from all over the place. I just so say I what's on my mind. So I actually totally disagree with you because I think okay. the idea of, podcasts of meaning, which is clearly what you're engaged in and have really brought a lot of comfort and provocation and thoughtfulness to so many people as a result of this represents your own search for meaning, right? Represents, you know, they're not gathered somewhere, although they may be the best of Scott Kahn coming sometime soon. Um, But thinking about different ways in which we have all embarked on a quest for truth and meaning and um, and also found ephemeral value in the things that we enjoy. I appreciate your saying that, and I hear what you're trying to say, but let me push back a little bit. When you say that this is personal, the phrase, kizekol hadam, which I'll leave you to translate because perhaps yeah. I'm not translating it correctly, doesn't that undermine that idea? This is all humanity? I mean, I think of it as kizekol um, This is the totality or the sum total of the human condition or the human experience, right? Zekol adam, mm-hmm. right? So you, you can, you know, you can opt for the existentialist approach, which is at the end of the day, nothing is worthwhile. And therefore, if I have to leave the world, there's nothing really to contribute. Or you can do something, one act of kindness and say, this is why I'm here, right? As they call Adam, call Adam isn't to me the punctuation mark on the end of a life. It's a thing that you say multiple times every single day when you feel that moment of purpose, right? And so you say, you know, when someone says, oh, that was so nice of you, you say, right? It's the least mm. I could do, right? And I was, this is ah, nice. the least I can do in the world is is be the kind of person, given the fact that there's so much tragedy, I'm not going to, I'm not going to prevent that. But what I can do is say, my brothers and sisters in Morocco right now are suffering in an earthquake. I have to give a thousand dollars, right? Or I have to give $18, whatever it is. I was, all I have is my humanity. And my humanity is actually an outgrowth of my belief in God and my observance of mitzvot. Because honestly, if all those things have not contributed to a life of goodness, then I think we're missing the point. Right. 
if we can't take a chill moment and relax with friends and 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 what does Coilette say? He doesn't say eat, drink, and marry, forget everything. He's not he's not he's not giving the hedonistic approach. He's saying because that is a gift from God. God gave you these things. Look at the world that God gave you. You're looking over at the rubble, but I gave you an amazing butterfly on the right side. So why do you keep one of the questions I ask in the book is if we're hardwired for happiness, right? The idea of the fly in the ointment, which is one of my favorite teachings in the book, um, is uh, the opening of chapter Yud, of Parak chapter 10. This idea of, it, it, can I see, is all I see the fly in the ointment? Or do I see the ointment and just remove the fly so that I can experience beauty um, with its totality? And also, it is fair to say that life can be beautiful and also painful at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. What you're saying now in terms of my particular purpose in life reminds me of something. I hope you don't mind the anecdote that I heard from someone named Tim Madigan. I interviewed him. He wrote a book about his friend, Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, the famous television host. Yeah. And the book is entitled, I'm Proud of You. It's a fantastic book. I've also been fortunate enough to stay in contact with Tim, who is simply put, just a wonderful human being. And Tim told Mr. Rogers this story, which Mr. Rogers liked very much told the story of a, a mashal, clearly, a metaphor of a man walking along a beach on which millions of starfish had been washed up by some hurricane, and he was throwing them back in one by one. Someone came over to him and said, why are you bothering? What difference can it make? There are millions. You can't even do the tiniest fraction. So the first person, who had been throwing starfish back into the water, picked up a starfish, turned to the man and said, to this starfish, it means everything in the world. And I think that that idea that we can create meaning that way, that even though I can't fix all the tragedy that's out there in the tchum, in the borders, within the borders of my own existence, I can still do what I can. That itself does provide meaning. Yeah. And I, look, for me, it's picking up the trash and, and, and making people visible who ordinarily aren't. You know, there are all kinds of people who service us in the course of a day. It could be a security guard. It could be someone in the cafeteria. It could be, you know, someone in the cash register. It could be someone in the TSA. Have you have you acknowledged their humanity, or you just walked by? So you know, I'd love to collect kizek kolada moments from people, right? And just say, wow, how could I create more of them? Because you know, I think the kindness of strangers is really um, what brings us to those moments, as opposed to the kindness of friends and family where we expect it. It's when someone else goes that extra mile or really cares about what we're doing or really asks us a question about how our day is going that, that we feel, oh, we're, we're all human in this project. We're all sufferers. We're all people of joy. And we all have the capacity to bring suffering and bring joy. Now let's move on to something which is perhaps an unpleasant topic, although for Kohelet it's not, which is the day of death. And he has a somewhat ambiguous relationship with death. He says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. He says that it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a banquet. On the other hand, it's not as though he welcomes death. He clearly fears death on some level, or at least is not happy with the concept of death. Could you summarize, and perhaps it's not given over to a summary, but what is his attitude towards death? Yeah, and I, I do have a chapter on it because you can't avoid it. Um, death and taxes, you're not avoiding those. And uh, we're not avoiding it in the book. Um, we didn't talk about money, but money is a, a, a I, I deal with a chapter on money also because he, he mentions about, you know, inheritance and, and what's worthwhile. And that's part of also the work dimension. Um, I think that the death dimension is uh, fascinating. And, and I think, again, in terms of amplifying transient value, nothing does that better than thinking about the day of death. And as I may not be here, um, why do people take on lots of different legacy projects when they're aging? Because they're realizing you know, this is coming soon and get prepared. Um, there's a really amazing book called Some, 40 Portraits of the Afterlife by a neuroscientist named um, David Eagleman. And in these portraits of the afterlife, uh, which themselves are really interesting, the fiction writing of a neuroscientist, um, and they're short, which always, I always like to recommend short books, um, these short essays. And one of them, he says, there will come a moment after you die when your name is said for the very last time. That's a gut punch on the one hand. And then you say to yourself, well, there are certain people's names that are still around, right? The, we still talk about Rembrandt, still talk about Shakespeare. We talk about Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Mayer. We talk about Moshe and Abraham. And part of it is saying, do good in the world so that you will be remembered. 
but also understand that we're we're here for a limited time. I don't think Kohelet is is praising death. He's actually praising life by acknowledging death. So you know, like it's sort of how do you extend your memory? Is being a, a memorable person, and um, what makes people memorable? Talent, goodness, evil. What category do you want to be remembered in? You know, um, I mean, I, I just gave a few, but there, you know, there are many more. We don't have that much time, but I have two more questions for you. My first question is this. Why do we read Kohelet on Sukkot? Can you give me an answer for that? Because Sukkot is the time of our joy, and Kohelet, as much as we can see it as a search for meaning and not as nihilistic, nevertheless, it does have a depressing quality on some level, talking about how things are on some level not really worthless. They are transitory. Yeah. Um, so I, I, my epilogue is, is, is on that question, and uh, in the interest of time, you know, it, it's hard to uh, put out all the different positions on this. Uh, but I do quote Rabbi Sachs, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs at length, because I think his uh, his essay and also he has a video on this. So for listeners, it's uh, it's really will make your Sukkot very, very different. Uh, I'll just say in a nutshell, talk about holding two inconsistencies in the same time. You know, you're holding the fruits of human labor, the etrog, right? The hadassim, that you know, so you're holding this beautiful plant life in one hand and you're also sitting in a sukkah which is by its nature, Dirat Arai, a very temporary building. Every building is temporary, Scott, right? Every building is temporary. You think of you know, buildings that'll last forever and they're in ruins. So it's just a question of how you define uh, temporal existence. So I actually think Sukkot is a time when we're aware of our Arai-ness, right? To use the, the Hebrew, of our, the temporality of existence. A harvest is a very temporary thing. You know, it brings momentary pleasure and economic benefit, but you don't know what's going what, what's going to be next year. So celebrate what you have right now, which is exactly on point to Zman Simplatenu, is the Kohelet mentioned Simchas so many times, and use that as a metaphor for, for something much larger, which is the sukkah is, is temporary, life is temporary, the house is temporary. Um, it's who you have around the table, you know, how we measure you know, Roshovarubo, right? As if, the, if the majority of someone is under the sukkah, th- th- then they're in the sukkah. So you go, that's funny to use a body part, but it's sort of saying it's the people who are with you in that place of fragility that are ultimately going to determine the quality of the temporality of your life. Okay, thank you. And my last question, just before we finish up, Kohelet does say there's nothing new under the sun. And as you point out in the book, that means for ideas as well. And yet, at the same time, I'm going to ask you, despite the fact that Kohelet says that, was there anything you discovered, perhaps it was said before, but something that was new for you, an innovation, a chidush, so to speak, in Kohelet from your research into this book? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I cite the the, um, the adage of Sir Isaac Newton that we may be, you know, they may be giants and we may be midgets, right, which is, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's a sensitive term right now, but 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 when you're a midget standing on the shoulder of a giant, you can see further than the giant. I do a little exegetical history of the of that in the beginning, uh, because I think it is hard to think about originality. And yet, in an age of technology, we see originality everywhere, right? So the new iteration of a phone or of a computer, some of it you say, oh, I don't I don't need that function. But sometimes that function will end up in the future being incredibly important you know, in uh, making sure that people don't get in accidents in cars, right? In protecting air flights. So I think in an age of technology, we we can appreciate there there are principles that are deeply baked into the world, scientific postulates, but then we're in a constant process of, of improvement. And wouldn't that be a fantastic metaphor for life? Being human, okay, comes with the same package of, of, of good and bad, of beautiful and ugly, but every human life, is exquisite and miraculous. And yes, we can change things. Maybe just in our corner of the world, maybe on just today and maybe just someone's day. But uh, if you don't feel that kind of human agency, it's very, very hard to live. Okay. Well, Dr. Erica Brown, I always learn so much from talking with you and it's been such a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been a delight. We are the boy band. Your tween made you see. It's painful concert number three. We are the boy band. We're five and nineteen. We are the boy band. Always singing on key. You love your kids enough to take them to see their favorite uh, band. Love them enough to make sure they're buckled up in the back seat. 
Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.